Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will continue teaching us from Genesis chapter 24, how Eleazar, the servant of Abraham, was challenged in finding a bride in Rebekah due to her brother Laban's obstacles, but Eleazar was able to deal with them all. And we hope you're enjoying these tremendous Bible studies, this great expository teaching that we're getting from Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. And we do appreciate your listenership, and we hope that you'll go to our website, friendshipwithgod.org, to take advantage of some of our free resources or to go to our bookstore that's there. But we also want to make an invitation to you for 2015 to become one of our monthly supporters of Friendship with God so we can continue broadcasting on this station in your city, as well as providing the messages for free for you, the listener, on iTunes.com, SermonAudio.com, and also on our main website, FriendshipWithGod.org. All there for free listening and free download, but it's there with your support, and we need you to become a monthly supporter if you can. You can call us at 800 247 3051, and we can set you up for that. That's 800-247-3051, and that'll help continue Friendship with God airing on this station in your city and also available by podcast and MP3 download. Again, it's 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051 to support Friendship with God this year in 2015 with a monthly donation of any amount. Or you can donate one time online at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, on Friendship with God. And then we saw in verse 55 that when it's time to go, Laban throws this new, he didn't think about this, this new obstacle in Eliezer's path. Well, wait a minute now. Just let the damsel abide with us a few days, at the least 10, and after that she'll go. And so, you know, Eliezer, he's got Laban's number, and so he knows that the few days, maybe 10 means 10 years. But again, we see Eliezer, he's quick on his feet. What's he going to do? He's already given the jewels. That card's gone. The jewels and the precious things are already gone. So what's he going to do? He's quick on his feet, and he pulls the God card. And he says to Laban, you know, if you hinder me, you are hindering God. And he says, you know, and as we see in verse 55, he presses him, and he says, send me away to my master. So again, he's quick on his feet. When he does, he knows when he should put his foot down and say, enough's enough. I need to go and draw this accusation in verse 56 that Laban is hindering Eliezer and hindering, therefore, God. So what we've seen in all this is a lesson for us that what we've seen in Eliezer, the football player moving down the field and he encounters one obstacle after another and he never thought of these and he's quick on his feet and he comes up with this new plan and he's quick to execute the plan and, and he's dodging obstacles and jumping over obstacles. That's a lesson for us because God wants us to be like Eliezer. I'm not sure about the stretching the truth part. You have to ask the Sunday school class that. But anyway, but he's got both eyes open, Eliezer does. He's got all his radars out. He's monitoring every player in the house and he's quickly assessing the situation, seeing the obstacles. He's thinking of new strategies. He's executing them and God's helping them all along the way. And we may start out our day or some trip or some project and we feel like You know, we're like the pioneers, Lewis and Clark. We're hacking out some brush and all of a sudden there's this some unexpected ferocious animal growling at us or some unexpected swamp or some cliff. And God is saying to us, think, think what you're going to do and then do it and I'll help you. And the fact that after all these obstacles in Eliezer's way, that in the end, Eliezer actually leaves with the bride. That's miraculous. That's just really miraculous. All right, 
Verse 33 is really important when he says, I will not eat. And we can just picture this scene, as we said before, wonderful meat set out before him. He hasn't seen this in a long time. He's so hungry, and yet he says, I will not eat. It shows here how Eliezer, as a servant, has this unrestrained eagerness to reach his goal. He's got this goal in mind, the goal that was given to him by Abraham. Get the bride. And he's just, he's got this eagerness that's not going to be restrained. He is focused. You know, I was thinking about this, and, and it reminded me of my stepfather. My stepfather was Ezra Goodman. Very Gentile name, Ezra Goodman. <laughs> And one day he was working for his brother Eli. And Eli had the used bookstore on Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles called Cosmopolitan Bookstore, where there were so many books that were just everywhere. I don't think the fire marshal ever thought about walking in there. I mean, if he did, nobody knew where all those books were. There were huge stacks, you know. One day, I remember he said, I found this book, and he sent me an original copy of Lang's commentary from Genesis from the 1800s. And he had a warehouse with a million more books in it. And Eli, he never got married because he lived in the bookstore. See? He slept among the books, Eli did. And at night, Eli would just walk among the books, and then he would learn where the books were. No wonder Eli never got married, right? He was the only one who knew where all these books were. So when customers came into the Cosmopolitan bookstore, you had to find Eli if you wanted to find a book. They were just raised, Ezra and Eli were raised among books because their father was a publisher, book publisher in Manhattan. And so they were just raised with these books. Ezra, my stepfather, was an author. He wrote books. So they loved books. Ezra was a very intense person. He was much more intense than his brother Eli. Eli was a little more laid back. But Ezra, when he got into a project, Ezra was just unstoppable. And Eli told me one time when Ezra decided to go and give a little help to Eli to organize some of his books in his bookstore, you know. And so <laughs> they were working together, Ezra and Eli, and it got to be lunchtime. And so Eli says to Ezra, uh, as, uh, he says, I think we can stop and grab a bite to eat. You know? And then Eli told me how shocked he was when Ezra snapped back to him and said, No, Eli, we're not going to eat. He says, until these books have been organized. Eli says, Okay, okay, we'll just keep working. You know? <laughs> so when they told Eliezer, you know, Why don't you stop and grab a bite to eat here, all this meat? Then like Ezra, Eliezer then snaps back in verse 33 with his famous, I will not eat statement. So both my stepfather and Eliezer. Anyway, the goal for them both was paramount. It was what was in their sight. It was, it was paramite. Food was not going to get in the way of the goal. They had this unrestrained eagerness to reach the goal. Nothing was going to get in the way. So Eliezer's offered meat. He says, I've got something more important now to do than to eat meat. With my hunger now, you might see me now just dive into this meat in front of me and like a hungry dog with a meaty bone, that's what you maybe think. But I'm just as intense and I'm just as diving in as that hungry dog with the meaty bone, but it's just not this meat. Does that remind you of some event in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? I have meat to eat that you know not of. You might want to turn to it. John 4, 31 through 35. Because it's the same thing. It's the same spirit here that we've seen with Eliezer and with uh, Ezra. And, you know, it says here in John 4, 31 through 35, it says that, uh, you know, we know this passage here. John 4, is it the woman at the well? Samaritan woman. A woman who's lived a very sordid life. Had five husbands. Has a man now that's not even her husband. 
It's amazing. And he's so intent on this woman, as defiled as she is, he says. Now at the end of speaking with her, the disciple said, you know, Master, can we grab a bite to eat? And he says, in the meanwhile, while his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. I have meat to eat that you know not of. In other words, he's saying, I will not eat, just like Eliezer. Therefore, said the disciples one to another, what meat? Have any man brought him ought to eat? And Jesus said unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work, which I think is what you were thinking of, Ken, when you were saying, you know, the Father's business. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white already to harvest. So in, in this verse 31, when they say, Master, eat, that's equivalent to Genesis twenty-four thirty-three, where it says, and there was meat set before him to eat. And then in verse 32, when the Lord Jesus says, I have meat to eat that you know not of, that's equivalent to Genesis 24, 33, where Eliezer says, I will not eat. And then in verse 34, when the Lord Jesus says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work, that's equivalent to Genesis 24, 33, where Eliezer says, I will not eat until I have told mine errand. And then in verse 33, when the disciples said, have any man brought him ought to eat? That's equivalent to verse 33, where it says, and they said, okay, speak on. So in verse 35 here of John 4, when he says, say not ye that there are four months, then comes a harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes. That's equivalent to Eliezer saying his mission was there, right in front of him. So Eliezer and the Lord Jesus, they see something that others didn't see. For the Lord Jesus, he was in essence saying, what do you see when you lift up your eyes? You see people coming? Lift up your eyes further, heavenward, and then see that those people, that's a harvest that's coming to you. That's not just a group of people. That's a harvest that's coming to you. That's a harvest that's ripe right now for the kingdom of God. There's a great harvest that's approaching you and coming here. Okay, now go back to Genesis 24. And think about this as we look at verse 34. Isn't it interesting to you? I mean, Ken came to me a couple of Sundays ago when I kept calling him Eliezer, and he said, it doesn't say as this was Eliezer. <laughs> and he's right. I keep calling him Eliezer because it's easier to say Eliezer than the servant. Isn't it interesting to you that in this longest chapter in Genesis, a chapter that is filled with so many details, that there is an omission of the name of the star in the chapter? I mean, you know, we say Eliezer, you know, like Ken says, never stated. I mean, if you want to talk about something that's conspicuous by its absence, it's the name of the star. I mean, verse 2 in Genesis 24, it starts off by saying the eldest servant in Abraham's house. And then we have a total of 13 times in this chapter, he's called the servant, the servant of Abraham. Wouldn't it have been easier for God just to have told us his name was Eliezer? And then, you know, what would have been so terrible for those 13 times if we just used one word, Eliezer, instead of two words, the servant, you know? It's so obviously purposeful that his name, the servant, has been omitted. Why? What's the significance of omitting this very important person's name? Well, when it comes time for him to make his speech, he doesn't even give his name. He says, I'm Abraham's servant. He doesn't even identify his name. The scripture doesn't identify his name. That's significant. Because we guess, I keep saying Eliezer, and I'm not doing it justice. He's never identified. Why? For the simple reason of this. He has not come here to speak about himself. 
Eliezer has not come here to speak about himself. Everything he speaks about is about Abraham. And everything he says is about Abraham. And there's nothing about himself. And he prefers to not even give his name because he's not part of the message. The message is Abraham. Does that remind you of any person in the Bible who has not come to speak about himself? The Holy Spirit. Now you might want to turn to this. John 16, 13 through 15. John 16, verses 13 through 15. See here, it's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And it says here, how be it? When he, the spirit of truth, he's not even called the Holy Spirit, his name is kind of omitted here, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he'll show you things to come. He shall glorify me, not himself, see. He shall receive of mine and show it unto you all things that the Father hath given are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Now, in verse 13, as we just saw here, it says the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself. He won't speak of himself. So when you have people or a meeting or a church where the focus is on the Holy Spirit, this is the church of the Holy Spirit, or this, you know, instead of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be sure that that's not a people or a meeting that the Holy Spirit is actually at work in because they're talking about the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 13, it says that the Holy Spirit is not going to speak of himself. So if the spotlight or the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit and the works of the Holy Spirit, woo, all these great things, look at the Spirit did this and the Spirit did that and I'm falling over because of the Spirit and the Spirit on you and I'm Spirit on you. Anyway, if all the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit, you can be sure the Holy Spirit's not working there because the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself. In this verse 13, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth because he guides into all truth. And in verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ said that the Holy Spirit will glorify, not himself, like Eliezer didn't glorify himself. He glorified the Lord Jesus. The message of the Holy Spirit is the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of the Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit. The message of the Holy Spirit is to not speak of himself. This is just the same as it is here with Eliezer. The message of Eliezer is not Eliezer. That's why his name's not given in the whole chapter here. The message of Eliezer is Abraham. Eliezer is glorifying Abraham. And the Holy Spirit is glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll return with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, on Friendship with God in just a moment. We'd like to encourage you to sign up for Tom Cantor's daily devotional verse. It's available for free, signing up with your email by going to friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also donate online at friendshipwithgod.org to support this Bible teaching radio program. You can also call us now or after the program with your support and donation at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. It'll help us to continue airing on this station in your city. You can also call us for a free gift for a lost Jewish friend that you know that needs to be reached with the gospel. Tom Cantor and Israel Restoration Ministries will give you a free gift to reach your lost Jewish friend, and that's made available by your donations and your support, but we'll provide that free if you have a lost Jewish friend that needs to be reached with the gospel. Call us at 800-247-3051. 
So how does the Holy Spirit glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? It says in John 14, 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. See, he glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ by teaching us about the Lord Jesus Christ and by causing us to remember all the things that the Lord Jesus Christ has said to us in our quiet times, in church, on the radio, in talking with other believers. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He reminds us. And so from where does the Holy Spirit do all this work? It says in John 14, 17, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. So from inside of us, he lives in our hearts, in the hearts of every believer, and the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. They can't know the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does a specific work in us that is a work of revealing. He's uncovering. And it says that in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14. It says, God hath revealed these things, them, unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the Spirit of man, which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God. What things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit is in the business of revealing. He reveals deep things of God to us, and we receive those things, and the world's not able to receive those things. In fact, the world just says, that's foolish. That's just stupid, because the world doesn't have the ability to receive these things. But just as Eliezer takes a back seat and doesn't speak of himself, the Holy Spirit does the same thing, takes a back seat. In John 7, 18, it says this, why the Holy Spirit does this, because it said, he that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true and no unrighteous is in him. That's Eliezer. Eliezer is not speaking of himself, he doesn't even give his name, because he's not seeking his own glory, but he's seeking the glory of him that sent him. He's seeking the glory of Abraham that sent him. If Eliezer spoke about himself, then he'd be seeking his own glory But he's not doing that. He's seeking the glory of Abraham. If God the Holy Spirit spoke about himself, then he'd be seeking his own glory and not the glory of God the Father who sent him to glorify God the Son. For example, a person who spoke about himself, we have the example, is Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8, 9 through 11. When it identifies, it said, there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because of a long time he bewitched them with sorceries. So there's three points that are given about this man, Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8. First, giving out that himself was some great one. He was trying to promote himself. Second, they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. He was successful in promoting himself. To him they had regard. When they went home, the take-home message was Simon the sorcerer, not God. 
You know, when they went home, they said, that was a great message. When they went home, they said, that was a great speaker. When they went home, they did not say, that was a great God. So Peter saw in one point in his life that he was going to be exalted like Simon the sorcerer, and he protested after the healing of a man who he made to walk, God made to walk through him. In Acts 3.12, it says, And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us, as though we by our own power or holiness have made this man to walk? Then he goes on to say, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, have glorified his son Jesus, whom he delivered up, denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. See, when the man was healed, Peter felt the stares on him. He felt everybody look at him. He says, why are you looking at us that way? Why? He says, why look you so earnestly on us? And Peter knew, and Peter thought, they think it's by our own power or holiness that we've done that? I'll make it clear. No. He says, it's not that. It's the God of Abraham. He's glorified his son. That's why the man walks. That's why Paul said when he came to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4, when he said, and I, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with the excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, fear, much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power. See, Paul said he did not come having a polished speech or wisdom. And he didn't come saying, no, I've got, really got the speech that's excellent. He didn't come that way. Or wisdom. Paul said he didn't polish his speech with enticing words. He was in essence saying, you know, when I stood in front of my mirror and I practiced my speech to you, he said, what did I see? I saw a man who was weak. I saw a man who was fearful. And I saw a man whose delivery was trembling. It can't get worse. And Paul said that that was fine that Paul was out of the way because he says, I want this to be a demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God, the power of God and what he had to say because he knew that what would happen as long as he stayed on the point that it was going to be Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's why it's so important to see that the name of the servant is just not given in the chapter. Now we've seen all the negative implications for why Eliezer said that he was Abraham's servant, and that was de-emphasizing himself. But there's a positive implication to what Eliezer said when he said he's Abraham's servant in verse 33, because by saying that he was Abraham's servant in verse 33, Eliezer is saying, he's on a mission, I'm on a mission for Abraham. And what he's going to say is not from me, it's from Abraham himself. That's the point that Paul made twice in Scripture when he said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. The Lord Jesus, same night he was betrayed, took bread, like we're going to do in next service. And 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he said, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. See, what Paul is saying here is that what he had given, was giving to the Corinthian believers, was what had actually went into his soul, changed him, and he was just like confessing it from his own soul. In his time alone with God, Paul had received, Paul had embraced, Paul had incorporated into his life the message that Christ had died for our sins. And then he delivers it to the Corinthian believers. It's like the bird that goes and finds the worm and chews it and regurgitates it. But that's the pattern for all effective biblical teaching. When Paul said, I delivered unto you first of all that which I received, he's saying effective biblical teaching is never effective if the teacher just delivers to the hearers sterile information that the teacher has not first embraced and made a part of himself 
Or in other words, the teacher must be personally exercised by the material before he's qualified to teach it to others. And so these are the negative, these are the positive implications of verse 34 when Eliezer says, I'm Abraham's servant. And those are the same negative and positive implications for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants, like Eliezer. For Jesus' sake. John the Baptist is mentioned. He's a model for this. In Matthew 3.11, he says, I did baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me, he's mightier than me. And I'm not even worthy to hold his shoes. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost with fire. And so John the Baptist is pressed. Make a statement. Make a statement. In John 1.22, who art thou? We may give an answer to them and send us. What sayest thou of thyself? And John the Baptist's reply in John 1.23 is, I'm the voice, (laughs) one crying in the wilderness. It's so demeaning of yourself to call yourself a voice. What's a voice? A voice, you can't even see a voice. We can see that what happened to John the Baptist happened to Eliezer. Eliezer, what sayest thou of thyself? Eliezer says, I'm Abraham's servant. I'm Abraham's servant. He's de-emphasizing himself. He's emphasizing to the hearers, I'm sent. I'm sent by Abraham. Another day of incredible teaching here on Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Don't forget to pick up Tom Cantor's Friendship with God Bible. It's available at our website, friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. Over 2,200 pages, 600 pages of helps and notes and a lambskin leather cover. It's a wonderful reference and study Bible you'll want to have. You can also call us directly to pick that up at 800-247-3051. 800 dollars $90 will include shipping and handling. We'll send you the Friendship with God Study and Reference Bible. 800 247